This is the worst day of my life. 18 fucking years and they blow it on the last weekend of the season. Come on, Paul, it's only half time. It's only 1 0. Doesn't matter. They've blown it. Welcome to the Book Club on Football Ramble Presents. I'm Kate Mason. I'm Jim Campbell. And this time out, let's cut to the chase. We're with Nick Hornby. He may not be the author of the best football book ever written, but he's certainly in the top two. This is a book that came out 30 years ago, and when you read it again, it's as vital and relevant today as ever. At the heart of it is the absolute knowledge that football fans are the game. Nick makes sense of what we feel, expressing concerns and grasping moments that make you understand your own love of football better. Yes, this week we're reading Fever Pitch by Nick Hornby. How are you feeling? Sick. Just wasn't expecting it, you know, not today anyway. They had to tell you sometime. Tell me what? What have we been talking about? Well, I know what I've been talking about. What have you been talking about? The job. The job? You think I'll be this upset about a stupid poxy job interview? We lost at home to Derby today. We've blown it. Fever Pitch diagnoses football fandom as a condition and tells of a life measured out in trips to Highbury and those quiet bargains every football fan makes. If we win the league, I won't mind the rejection. He denies his first book had much of an impact on the social makeup of those who started to attend football matches, but it sold over a million copies and was given out as part of a pack to Arsenal fans when they left Highbury in 2006. For this episode of Book Club, we're speaking with Nick Hornby about his book, Fever Pitch. Thank you so much for coming into the studio, Nick. Great pleasure. Oh, so lovely to see you. Not a long trip as well, as we understand. Not a long trip. I still live very local both to you and to the stadium. Stadia. (laughs) (laughs) A perfect place to be. Um, Jim and I were watching... Sorry to start with a low moment already, but the Arsenal Villarreal second leg a few days ago. And the commentator, Ian Dark, said, Arsenal need a fever pitch crowd here. I don't know how regularly this happens to you, but how does it feel when people are referencing your book in those kinds of contexts? Well, I always presume that's not what they're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely are doing that. Uh, Okay. Uh... It's kind of great. I mean, the book is, uh, what is it, nearly 30 years old. Um, and it it kind of has survived and, and thrived and um, people keep doing different things with it. I've just been talking to someone who's doing a one-man show um, later in the year, which is the second time that's happened. So um, it, it, it obviously I had no hopes for anything of that kind when I wrote it. So now it's it's turned into this. What's your feeling? Um well there was a there was a tiny little part of me that thought if I get it right it will speak for a lot of people for quite a long time, I guess. And I I sort of knew that it might sell mo- more than first first books, most first books because as an Arsenal fan, I knew I'd be happy to buy a duvet cover or a really bad book from the club shop. So why not spend a tenner or whatever on a on a book? Um, and then um, I, I remember this amazing review I got in a Spurs fanzine, and I thought, oh, that's that's really weird. And it was a it was a really funny review. It said it works exactly the way the author intends, but you just do it in reverse. So his highs are your lows. And- <laughs> Uh, but it, but it was lovely. I thought I didn't know fans from other clubs would read it, and then it started going sort of up and down the country, and then it started to be published in other countries. And I realised that you know the club didn't really matter which club it was didn't matter at all. Um, but if you're specific about your feelings, then of course you you do chime with other people. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Isn't yeah. it? I mean, of course, you're reading it as an Arsenal fan, Jim. But yeah, but also, I mean, reading it now, and I, I guess it would have been the same in the '90s for, for, for younger readers as well. It's um, it is almost like a bit of a time capsule from the '60s and '70s because even from from the '90s, clearly football was so so different, and it you really kind of bring across what a kind of intense and visceral experience it it was. It sounds like it was actually quite scary quite often. It really was quite scary quite often. I mean, um, you, 
people talk about how the media blow everything out of all proportion. But, you know, there was a time in the 70s where there would always be a fight on yeah. the clock end involving quite a large number of people, uh, and you'd never see anything about yeah. it in any paper. And Arsenal aren't a team you associate no, with that either. Uh, I mean, I think a bit more then. Mm. Um, you You couldn't cross London wearing colours uh you know if i had a scarf or a shirt or anything it all went in a in a bag tucked away in order to go and get my train home yeah um and it is completely different now but people would sort of lie and wait for each other and there was the whole thing about if you wanted a fight you'd go and stand on the clock end because that's where the away fans were and there was no um home and away fan division you could just wander in to wherever you wanted and pay your money. So Spurs fans would be in the North Bank, West Ham fans would be in the North Bank, Arsenal fans would be on the clock end. And it was a, it was a pretty awful atmosphere, um, but incredibly intense in a, yeah. in a kind of exciting way. I I, it's better now. I mean, on, on balance, everything is better now, but we've lost some things. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm really interested in that in particular because clearly um, I love being pretty much 99% sure that no one's going to punch me when I go to the Emirates. Um, But on the flip side of that, I mean, you talk in the book about how it was 15p to to get into the ground. I'm not sure what the uh, I'm not sure what the equivalent is these days, but well, I'm sure it's not what the, whatever the you know the cheapest Arsenal ticket is. I can tell you that the most helpful equivalent was that it always cost me exactly the same to get in as it cost me on the tube. Right. Oh wow. my goodness. Um, they stayed completely in step, so it was 15p for a kid to travel across London. Then it was 25p for an adult, and and the same with the turnstiles. 15p in the schoolboys, 25p. To, to stand behind the goal. It just seems it just seems so alien, doesn't it, to, to modern football. And so that's that's kind of what is so so precious about it, just sort of seeing getting an insight into this sort of um the sort of reality that, that that being a football fan was in the sixties and seventies and growing through it. Well of course one of the interesting things that comes with that is that it changes your relationship with the players because the whole value for money thing, yes. which I think fans are very aware of now. It's like you're paying a thousand pound plus for a season ticket. Um, money really wasn't the issue in in the seventies and eighties. Like you, you, everyone pretty much could afford to go. Um, so you didn't have the same kind of resentment mm. as somebody, you know, as you do now, somebody who you know is being paid £300,000 a week. And you, you still used to hear that shouted, like I say in the book, £100 a week. <laughs> £100 a week, I wouldn't give you that. But, uh, <laughs> I, I do remember being, I was very, very broke at the time, but a friend of mine and I, we'd sort of scraped together some money to go and see Arsenal with, with you know, because you, you buy the membership, which allows you to buy the ticket in the first place. I remember what, spending 50 quid to watch Arsenal draw nil-nil with Fulham and like Andre Arshavin ran about probably as much as I did. And I'm just thinking <laughs> like, oh, can I afford this? And the, yeah, I mean, it sounds great that that just wasn't a consideration. No, it really wasn't a consideration. And, and going to away games was cheap as well. The travel was cheap and, you know, it was cheap to get in. Um, so that stuff you didn't worry about at all. And then everyone says, oh, all the atmosphere's gone. But you you have to remember there were times, uh, you know, I can remember the first game of the season, mid-80s, 21,000, I think, Mm. in a crowd of 61,000, no expectation at all, not very much noise. And the famous game was before my time, but um, a game against Leeds in 1966 when there were four and a half thousand people there and um, people are supposed to have lit bonfires on (laughs) On the North Stay Bank, warm. Double, huddle, huddle around. <laughs> so it isn't like this. Oh, it was seventy thousand people heaving. Yeah, it was, you know, there were there were lots of games where. I mean, I think average attendances are way up from when I was a kid because if they had a bad season, everyone would just disappear. So mm. when you're talking about fans going and being a part of the game, it is more of a. Even though it's not a. It's not a financial sacrifice, as discussed, because it's it's cheap in the time yeah. when you're l- yeah. learning to love football. But it seems like it's more of a there are different barriers in the way, like the fear of being beaten up, well, or, being beaten or up. it being not such a pleasant experience. Well, that's how the Premier League brands itself, guys. The pleasant experience <laughs> of watching football. Well, there, you know, very few women went, not least because um, 
I couldn't see. And I'm, I'm not very tall and I couldn't see a lot of the time. Uh, so, so there was that, all the sight lines in the stadium. Mm. Now, you know, you, it's very hard to, not to be able to see what's going on in front of you. But that was a, a big thing then. Yeah. Um, you know, big games getting there two hours before kickoff. Otherwise, they'd lock the gates on you. Um, I didn't fully understand that when you were talking about it because I thought that was more part of a ritual, wasn't it? You always said with your with your dad, you oh, wanted I, to go I used and to get go there. That was your ritual. Dad, yeah, but, but if it was like a cup quarter final or something, I mean, I can remember just because I, me and a friend had nothing to do, going to see Chelsea Crystal Palace in um, in like an FA Cup fifth round, Chelsea second division, Palace third division. Yeah, gates locked at midday. 55,000 people at Stamford Bridge. It was the big game yeah. in London that day. Malcolm Allison, manager of Crystal Palace. and But, yeah, if you, if you wanted to make sure of going, then you had to give yourself an hour, an hour and a half for those those sorts of games. Perhaps now is a good time to talk about, it's about this season, particularly yeah. in that... And- the previous season, I guess, in the situation with COVID, because fans, this question about them being expendable, in terms of them not paying very much money back in some of the period that we're mm. talking about from fever pitch, and then today paying lots and lots of money, mm. but the Premier League and other leagues creating a product in which they are effectively expendable. Where do you see that going? Well, first of all, I don't think they are expendable because I think that the thing about football uniquely is that that shot that you get on TV of a ball going into the top corner with the fans behind the goal going nuts. If you take them out of that, then it might as well be squash to name. <laughs> People want squash. <laughs> to name butter sport. Uh, but, you know, it's what stops it being a park game. Is, is, yeah. it's or a, a training game. Passionately care about yeah. it. and And I think that Yes, there's a lot of money to be made in, in China and, and the Middle East and stuff. But if you take those people out of the stadium, I, I do think uh, that the the attractiveness of the, the product disappears pretty quickly. So you have to find a way of keeping those stadiums full, I think. But given the way that it's been treated, as, as and particularly as well with the European Super League, is a sense that football as a commodity now is trying to deny, you know, it's it'd be better for the people who are running the game if that if what you're saying is not true. Yeah, I, I, would it? I mean, if you loosen the link, weaken the link between fan and club, I think an awful lot starts to collapse with it. Um, I mean, in my, my, my fear, I suppose, is that they drive all the... What do they call them? Heritage fans. Legacy yeah. fans. Legacy fans. fans. Yeah. They drive all the legacy fans out, but you can still fill the Emirates every week with tourists. Well, exactly. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, you, you know, in London of an average weekend. Easily, surely. Easily, I yeah. would have yeah. thought. I don't know. We've all been to the Emirates when the... Uh, when the attendance sounds suspiciously high, so <laughs> well, they, <laughs> they say, say they fill it. Do they yeah. not say the same attendance every week? I swear, yeah, every single do. Spurs yeah. game I've ever been yeah. to is the same. Oh, in the old stadium, it's the same. Yeah, it's yeah. it's, uh, it's well, they've sold the tickets, I guess. Yeah, maybe that's it. So but, people don't have to turn up. Yeah, yeah. But that, I think that that's it. Is it? I think that connection was really underestimated by by the the people trying to put the European Super League together. I think that well, groundswell of the European of support. Super League was such a. I mean, I would love someone to write like a New Yorker length piece on the decisions that were taken and you know, being in the room because from the outside, you think. You've you've thought of this yesterday, <laughs> announced it today, yeah. and you're chucking it all in tomorrow. Also, have you ever watched a game? Like, <laughs> like, or, or do you understand how the league works or anything? I mean, they never explained how the top four would work, for example. It's like, why would anyone bother yeah. breaking sweat in their domestic league if they know they're already in... Yeah, you know, well, there was that whole thing. That, oh, some people will still qualify. How? Yeah, yeah, sure. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we haven't thought about that. Uh, I mean, it had the worst PR and and the worst kind of strategy that I've I've ever come across in a business that was supposed to be huge. Yeah, yeah. but it's run by people who've in the main made a lot of money and have been successful as things, as we understand it. It's baffling. 
Absolutely baffling. Have they made a lot of money out of things? I don't know. Or have they like been the sons of people who yeah, have made a lot of, of made, things? Yeah. And, and a lot of them haven't made money from football. But even then, would you not want to focus group your new business? Would you not? Would you oh, not yes. get you know get a few fans? Like that's not hard. Thing. Just give someone twenty quid. Like one of my friends does focus groups on voters voters in the north and like you know give her 50 quid she'll rock up and ask them a whole load of questions about how the offside rule works or whatever be prepared if there is a pushback against it yeah then have your answers ready don't go oh i didn't know it was going to be like this wait i'm I'm stopping it now i mean the whole thing two days or whatever it was from beginning to end and then man city and chelsea walked away (laughs) looking like the good guys like we are (laughs) we are in opposite land you yeah. really are just yes. through the looking yeah, yeah, what, yeah. what does that mean then? The fact that that didn't, for you, looking at football as it having with this long, longer lens than we have in terms of time frame, what does that mean? Is that, do you feel optimistic about the fact that that happened? Not particularly, because I think they'll, you know, it's it's water against a dike and, you know, we, we blocked it this time. Mm. Uh, but there's so much wrong with the way the, game is is run and I mean not least we're in a situation where uh tv money is flooding in to the game um and fans are paying tons of money for tickets Mm. and all this apparently isn't enough to keep a club financially solvent you think how have we arrived at that position where you actually do need an Abramovich to compete I mean obviously Leicester are the, the golden shining light to all of us but yeah man city and chelsea were the good guys simply because their owners are not running their clubs as a business yeah well i mean even leicester have very very wealthy owners well yes and also that's not necessarily a good thing if you're using your your football team as an example of you know sports washing quite (laughs) (laughs) i don't don't know what side they're coming down on (laughs) you know no I, i i i it's all pretty awful, but I'm just saying that that's the only way, apparently, that we can keep a football club afloat is by finding somebody who will give you so much money that and they don't care about it coming back yeah. or not. I mean, that's not realistic or... No, it's interesting, isn't it? Workable. Because the idea of moving to the Emirates was supposed to mean that Arsenal could compete with Man United and the teams where, you know, the matchday revenue was, was one of the big things. And then obviously Abramovich came along and changed that, like right at the worst possible time for Arsenal. But th- there is a point in the book where you talk about being at the 1978 FA Cup final and it being full of corporate types. And that, <laughs> did, that did make me think, okay, maybe it's always been like this. And it always seems to be the worse that it is, or it's just been off on this terrible trajectory ever since. Well,. I remember when the book came out and I was I was getting a lot of stick for middle class, you know, old middle class fans, blah, blah, blah. And I remember talking to Tony Parsons, who's also an Arsenal fan. He said, who do they think has been sitting in those stands since 1927? I mean, those Art Deco yeah. stands. I mean, it has always been a game, actually, for everybody. Um, and there are people who could afford more than other people and they've, Chosen to sit in nicer seats. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the cup finals have always been like that anyway, haven't yeah. they? Um, you don't know who or why people are there. Well, it's more like collecting a piece of heritage, isn't it? Yeah, or a little anecdote almost. It's, yeah, because I mean, we've seen this quite a bit and you, you write about it in your afterword as well that, that people say fever pitch helped to sell football to the middle classes. And, you know, clearly that's very sort of overly simplistic. But sort of, how do you feel about that? Because football writing is taken a lot more seriously now, isn't it? Books like even, even things like Why England Lose, like the Simon Cooper book, right? <coughs> yeah. like, so you didn't have that sort of thing in the nineties, or it no. certainly seems that, that you, you didn't. Do you feel do you feel a sense of pride of, of, of Fever Pitch being a genuinely very groundbreaking thing? Well, I don't know if I explained it in that afterward, but what I've always thought is that the true change took place in the nineteen sixties um, with George Best and. Uh, England winning the World Cup and football being on TV a lot more and creating a whole new generation of people who are watching. But, and, you know, all grammar school boys as opposed to public school boys. I was a grammar school boy. And by the mid-90s, early to mid-90s, these people who've grown up with it are suddenly, you know, publishing books or writing newspapers in a way that had never happened before. So I think Fever Pitch and, and other things that happened round about then reflected a change that had begun long long before mm. that. 
So you wouldn't have been in a position to write a book like this or get it published if that hadn't happened? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Uh, well, there's I've, a much more of a heritage of this in, in America, isn't there? Yes, Whereas in the UK... The, well, the UK is incredibly snobby about sport anyway. Um, the US, I think popular culture generally is taken incredibly seriously and it's the glories... They are the glories of America. I mean, uh, America invented jazz and cinema and and R and B. And um, how could they not, as a nation, be proud of that? Whereas our stuff is all Shakespeare and <laughs> Jane Austen. Yeah. And so there is a a kind of high low division that America doesn't have. I think it, it you never get anyone in America saying I'm a, I'm a bit of a weirdo. I read John Updike and I watch baseball. Right, <laughs> uh, that isn't a thing. Whereas here it is a do you think it still is? Though? Yes, I do, actually. Like, even right now, today, 2021? Yeah, I do. I do think that we have a burden of, of cultural weight um, with our classical traditions that um, we haven't ever fully sloughed off. Do you honest, agree? I don't know. Yeah. I think it's certainly... I feel like our listeners of the Football Ramble are very much yes. the, they are very much the almost the protagonist of of, of the movie Fever Pitch. Right. They're, they're that kind of person. Yeah. Um, so I think it's definitely changing. But I certainly come up against. I see people's eyes glaze over when I say what I do, and they're really interested when they hear the word podcast. And it's like you watch a piece of them die when they hear the word football. Yeah. Um, and I think there is still definitely an, an element of that. I I was doing a. a school fundraising quiz at my kids' school a few years ago and um, uh, one of the rounds was sport and the guy sitting opposite me went, Um, and then pushed the paper over to me. And um, and I thought, okay, answer some of the other questions. See, he wasn't any good at literature either. (laughs) (laughs) But it was just the sort of knee-jerk... Remind me reflex. not to do a pub quiz when they call me. (laughs) (laughs) But that knee-jerk reflex of moron... Um, only morons know about sport. Yeah. I think that still happens. And you think that's a British thing then? Yes, I do. I, I, I've, you know, travelled with the book and other books to other European countries and I, I really don't think that in Italy and Germany they they feel that way. Interesting, because I've always seen it through a kind of, I guess, a female lens in the sense that, you know, people are sort of mildly surprised still that, I'm, yeah. that I work in football and, and that I'm a broadcaster and... And so I don't maybe get told that guys don't like football because they're already assuming that I don't like it as much as them, even though they don't like it. (laughs) We have a complicated class relationship with our sport anyway because of rugby union and cricket being the traditional middle-class public school sports. So um, our football, I think, was more associated with state education mm. and um, uh, grammar schools, comprehensive schools than than those other sports. And that's why? Well, it just complicates the whole picture in England, I think. Even off the back of what you're saying about the winning the World Cup and, and Britain being able Not to see so themselves now, reflect, England being reflected in, in glory. And... <laughs> you could always find good cricket books um, yeah. and well-written cricket books. And... You know, when I when I was writing Fever Pitch, there'd been a success the year previously with um, Pete Davis's book about the 1990 World Cup, all yeah. played out. And I got turned down by the people who now publish me, Penguin, uh, because the guy said, I, I just can't see it happening twice in two years. Wow. Um, and that was how it was then. Uh, my feeling was that they'd given up on football publishing because they published really bad books <laughs> that they said they won't even buy these they won't even buy the stupid ones whereas <laughs> and, the, and know, they're idiots, <laughs> they're that's, idiots. That, that's the, that was that's it. the thinking isn't it's it like they won't even buy a, a, a managerial autobiography ghost written by someone from the sun how are they going to cope with anything else whereas i knew that there were a lot of people like me but Jim's come at this from the perspective of saying there's quite a lot more writing about football, about sports. And there is. There that's, is. that's higher quality, absolutely. which I would absolutely agree with. Otherwise, we yeah. wouldn't have a football yeah. book club because yeah. we wouldn't have anything to read. But, <laughs> um, but there is still quite Yours a... Yours truly by Ian Year. That was my favourite. <laughs> <Yeah. player. laughs> he, he was a very bad centre-back you, of the 60s. You sort of love and hate him. I can't quite get to the heart <laughs> yes, no, of that. But there no, is still quite a weight of those other books that you're talking about. Uh, the, the bad ones. 
Yeah. Yeah, but I do think that um, the 90s did the change peak. things. No. I oh, think sorry, the 80s would have some, been the peak of the... Of the bad stuff. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I, I do think that football now can compete with, with cricket or baseball in the US, which has always had great writing and boxing as well. Was there ever a temptation to approach Fever Pitch um, as a novel? Because obviously High Fidelity came a little bit later and there yeah. were the echoes of that same obsessive type yeah, of yeah. character. And was that, did that ever enter your mind or, or did, did Fever Pitch inform High Fidelity? Was there any sort of link between the two? I, I guess it's because obviously I know that Fever Pitch went on to be a movie, which was fictionalised. Yeah. It's kind of yeah. hard to un- uncouple them in my yeah, head. Yeah. Um, I I don't know about you. I've always had a slight problem with sports fiction, just because I'm such a sports nerd. Mm. So um, if they say, and then Arsenal played Barcelona in the final and they beat <laughs> yeah. them five nil, and you think what? Yeah, it's, when? yeah and you uh, get commentators going, "You couldn't write it." Like people yeah, do write yeah, it. People <laughs> write really it easy all to the do. Time. Yeah, they never write the nil nil draws. Um, I uh, no, I wanted it to be non-fiction. I wanted it to be a memoir about growing up there are a couple of american books i'd read that were very influential on me i I realized that you didn't have to be famous to write a memoir if you were trying to do something Mm. different and you know the point i think i'd always had these stories associated with games some of them i'd told lots of people girlfriends or whatever and and some of them i'd told myself so the games were kind of self-selecting the games i wrote about because they were the ones i remembered there were tons i'd forgotten uh, but that nothing memorable yeah. happened. So it was it was a selection of games where uh, it chimed with you know what was going on in the world, like Hillsborough, or something that was going on in my personal life, or whatever. But um, it, it was always very very clear to me that I wanted it to be non-fiction. And talking about that personal life is something we'll I think come on to um, after the break. So we're just going to get to one now. <laughs> okay. This is where I cry. Yes. I hope so. Arsenal comes streaming forward now in surely what will be their last attack. A good ball by Dixon, finding Smith. But Thomas charging through the midfield. Thomas, it's up for grabs now. Thomas! Right at the end. An unbelievable climax to the league season. Well into injury time, the Liverpool players are down absolutely abject. Welcome back to the book club with me and Jim and yours. And today with Nick Hornby, we're talking about his book, Fever Pitch, 30 years, nearly 30 years on. And of course, we're also talking about your relationship to football as it stands today. And much of the kind of addiction, as you tell it, is not so much football or even Arsenal. It's going specifically to home games. That's how it feels reading the book. And of course, in the last, what, 13 months, you haven't been able to do that once. How has that changed your relationship to football? Well, I have to say I've really missed going. And when we moved from Highbury, um, I moved, I've got, I think there were five of us in our seats and we moved with the row in front and the row behind as well. Because in we a block? Wanted, yeah, in a block because we wanted to recreate oh. what we had in Highbury. Um, and the row behind is still more or less intact um, so I, I, I miss them. Um, one of them is the magnificent um, Harry, who um, has Fat Harry's hot dogs right outside uh, the the tube station, and who's one of the funniest men um, I've I've come across. And we've been texting occasionally, but um, you know it's not the same as just messing about inside the ground. Um, it, now it's very much dependent on how much pleasure you're getting from watching the team. And, um, of course, we really haven't had very much pleasure. <laughs> Limited, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, some of the games, it's been like, I, I can't believe how much nothing I'm yeah. watching. You know, it's like they're not playing for anything. They're not playing. 
Yeah. <laughs> and no one's watching. Why and are no you one's doing watching. this to why, me? <laughs> yes, and why am I doing it to myself? And I, I've become a joke in the house for saying, I'm not watching today. I'm not watching today. And then I always end up watching. And, and your fear is that you miss out on a game like that Chelsea game where yeah. hope, expectations had never been lower and the kids came yeah. in and they were brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, there is a... Uh, there's a lot in the book that, you know, really does set, set it apart from being uh, d- just a list of games. Obviously, the format, as you, if you mentioned already, is is the games that you, that you remember that have really had a profound effect on you. But within that, you talk about how you felt at games. And obviously, that is, we are really, really missing that at the moment, not being able to be in the stadium. Yeah. But there's there's a, a bit in it where you talk about going to games on your own when you're quite a lot younger. You talk about being kind of unhappy there. But in that really sort of crushing adolescent way that's really difficult to to even really imagine later in life but you actually enjoy in the sanctuary that football provided do you do you think sort of football fandom and the myriad compartments of that are still misunderstood because i completely understand that being being able to just you know be in that ground surrounded by people but alone with your own misery and that misery being okay because you've got the cushion of everything around you like it's about more than watching men it's more than watching 22 millionaires kick a ball about isn't it for example and yes yeah completely and and one of the things that always struck me about football right from when i was very young is that um, I loved it that people took it so seriously. It mm. wasn't an entertainment in the way that, you know, if you look around in a cinema and you see beaming faces or or kind of, you know, people are enthralled in the moment. But, you know, in a bad game, it's genuinely unhappy people <laughs> taking it incredibly seriously yeah. and not not joshing. I mean, that that is one thing I do think that separates football from American sports, mm. that, that they go for a day out. And yeah. I don't think there are many American fans who feel it like a dagger to the heart. I mean, they, you know, the phrase in baseball is you win 50, you lose 50. It's what you do with the rest that counts. If you're losing 50 games a season, um, you do have a different relationship to your sport. Our, yeah. our defeats are a, a big deal. You know, if you're a, a big team, you can't afford more than four or five. Um, so to look at those faces and, and people so much older than me. And of course, looking back on it now, when I started going in 1968, there must have been hundreds of people in the ground who were there for the first game at Highbury. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, so you've got that sense of history going right the way through, you know, that weird time when a football stadium suddenly popped up between uh, rows of terraced houses yeah. in North London and yeah. 70,000 people started turning up. Um, and I loved it that, you know, the, the old turnstiles, that they would have opened for people 40, 50 years before. They hadn't changed at all. There was nothing electronic. And uh, it, it felt like somewhere apart from the rest of life. It did feel like a museum yeah. piece, even when I was younger. Whereas now my kids go and, you know, it's like a, it's like an airport and yeah. it's electronic to get in. And um, there isn't that same sense of separation. I don't think that's a, that's a kind of stupidly nostalgic thing to say, but there aren't many places you can go um, as part of your regular life that are just old and, yeah. and have been enjoyed in the same way for a long time. Do you, do you think, I mean, what do you think of the Emirates? Because I mean, we were speaking to, to Mike Calvin about this, weren't we? Like, I only got to go to Highbury a few times because of the, the just financial circumstances yeah. of my life at the time. Um, but it looks tiny on the telly because, of course, it does because you know the, yeah. the fans are so close to the pitch and stuff. And then you get there and it's a stadium and it's massive. And to me, Highbury, my memory of Highbury makes it feel bigger than the Emirates does, which is quite weird. But like, how have you, like, how do you, as someone who's you know. Spent so much time at Highbury, and as you say, you know there would have been people at the first ever game there at yeah. games you were. Like, how does it compare? Like, do you do you feel do you feel at home yet? I I feel at home. Um, I mean, it's kind of annoying knowing that if they were going to do it now, it would probably be completely different. Yeah, that they made some design calls early. That you know, for example, Spurs learnt from our mistakes. I think. Um, and so if it was raised to the ground and rebuilt, it probably wouldn't be anything like the stadium they've got now. Whereas the old stadium, you just accepted it was two lumps of concrete on either end with yeah. steps on it and then these two beautiful stands on either side. But, um, I mean, looking back on Highbury, I think the number of times I went when it wasn't safe 
uh, and and where you know, I think I said in the book where you you just presume you're going to be safe because it's always worked that way, and then suddenly not just Hillsborough but Ibrox as well in the in the early seventies, which was a very simple. Um, walking out of the stadium, a goal scored, everyone turning back to see what was going on and and people cascading down the steps and being crushed. I was nearly crushed outside. Uh, Once I ended up on the pitch at Highbury because of hooliganism, you're trying to get away from what's going on Mm. behind you. I don't know if you guys know this, but the reason that um, the... The semi-finals in 1989, for example, weren't at Highbury as Arsenal refused to put fences up. Mm. And and they were the things that killed people. Yeah. Um, I think the club always argued that you needed, in the last resort, to be able yeah. to escape. And So there was that was them, I think you talk about that actually in here, yeah. and that, that was them doing that logically. That was actually... Apparently. Wow, yeah, they okay. just said, we won't put these fences up. I don't know for what reason. Even though I they were supposed to be for safety, wasn't it? They that was the idea. They were supposed to be for safety, yeah, yeah. but they were, I, they were not safe. It's they just, were clearly not safe. It shows you how little thinking actually went into it. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, there are some quite powerful bits in the book and, you know, Hillsborough looms over it. You, you can't foreshadow it quite a lot where there are... You, I mean, clearly looking back, the plan was essentially... Oh, hopefully it will just be fine. Yes. There didn't seem to be much more in place than no, that. No, nothing more than that. And and I think I went once in the 70s to Highbury when there were 63,000 there. And that's probably twice as many as was comfortable. Yeah. Um, I you, mean, that's you, that's more than the Emirates, isn't yeah. it, for, for context? Yeah. You, you cannot guarantee... I mean, you cannot guarantee the safety of that number of people. And when you look at... Um, highlights from the 70s and 80s and you see uh, the cop uh, in particular and the way that people come down the terrace mm. uh, when something exciting happens, just trying to get a view. Yeah. Uh, but you go down 10, 15 steps um, and and just hope that you you don't get knocked over. And that bit where you talk about, I think it was a Southampton game, but I'm sure you'll put me right, where you're you're trying to oh, yeah. I had breathe afterwards ground, and, you, yes. and you, you, you sort of had to wait afterwards to catch your yeah, breath again yeah, I, yeah. I can't imagine how that feel or, that I mean was just trying to get into the ground yeah and at the, in that moment you sort of shrug it off to some degree although as Jim says it's foreshadowing what the, the events that yes. came subsequently because everyone's just going oh that was a bit that was a close call wasn't it <laughs> like and, and but you don't think oh that could have been a mass disaster but now I see it could have been wow I can't I just can't imagine that as a sensation but the way you capture it I think is another one of the really really powerful bits in the book, partly because of what came next. Yeah, and and now it's just turning up five minutes before kickoff, going straight through, taking your seat, um, which, let me say, is a really good thing. I'm not nostalgic for a time where you had to wait an hour and a half and and be squashed inside, even though it was cheap. (laughs) Not the squashing, maybe, but I do feel like the rituals are such a part of your your love. I mean, of so many football fans' love of of football as well. There's the... The, the sugar mice oh, I that used were to bite the head off a sugar mouse and constructive in, in winning football games. Yes. I mean, you've had uh, such it, a lot of impact on worked. so many games of football, <laughs> Nick. You must feel yeah. incredibly important when you. Used to, I mean, in the old days, you used to try and smoke one in as well. Uh, everyone had to light a cigarette at the same time and point it at the opposition. <laughs> goalkeeper but again they stopped you doing it what, what are you supposed to is this some sort of drafting principle or well, is it I guess just... you know either either he'd be blinded by the smoke wafting across the pitch or... yeah makes sense modern stats just smoke. don't account I mean, for this sort the of thing grounds, really. the ground smelt of cigars and pipes yeah. and cigarettes and it was a fantastic smell that to me was an act of cultural vandalism. <laughs> <laughs> you would have the smoking. Well, I suppose, yeah, as a famous smoker, I guess. Yeah. It's, uh... Even though I don't smoke, I'd, I'd still be happy to smell the pipes and cigars again. Yeah, I, see, I've never smoked, um, and I remember after the smoking ban. Oh, how do you remember the day after the smoking bad and Going what, into what pubs actually smell like? like? Oh God, <laughs> I might take back, it up. Bring it back. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's sweat. It's awful. The old carpets and yeah, yeah, yeah. That was part of the atmosphere. No, fair, fair enough. Um, interested to go back to what Jim started to talk about about this, like this. Well, we've talked about the kind of physically crushing nature of being in in stadiums, but also the the places that football 
took you kind of emotionally or sometimes they were a metaphor for what you were feeling. Yeah. Can you can you take those two things apart or are they such a function of the game and the emotion that you were feeling at the time? Yeah, I mean, in the 80s, definitely, I had these bouts of depression and I write in the book. I mean, it just was a weird night that I had to go and see this psychiatrist so I could get free therapy. And that was like at five o'clock and at 7.45 was a replay at White Hart Lane for the League Cup semi-final. And um, I know it sounds weird to anyone listening now, but you, you talk to... Any Arsenal fan from that time, they'd say number one moment was Michael Thomas. The number two was that League Cup semi-final. Um, and it it was a very different time, obviously, but we were banned from Europe, so um, only three competitions anyway. All, they all mattered. And as, as all Arsenal fans know, the Spurs announcer started announcing how to apply for tickets for the final during half time, we were losing one nil. That was all it was. Basically, it was one nil, and then scored two in the last five minutes. And there's just, you know, I look at it now. It's just mayhem yeah. behind the goal. And I, I sort of woke up the next morning, and a lot of things had vanished. <laughs> <laughs> deep, deep one. Quinn hoping to get on the end of it. It comes to Allison, driven first time. It might go anywhere. Is that, I mean, is that really... Yeah, it was this sort of golden spring then and we won the League Cup final, beat Liverpool at Wembley, which was very, again, seemed very unlikely and unexpected. And I was able to look at things slightly differently, I think. As a result of that? Because yeah. I, can, I can absolutely follow and have it, every person who follows a football club has felt that that experience of like... Some bloody thing has happened over which I have no control, hence the rituals yeah. that has affected my mood for the rest of the yeah. the day, the week, the month. That's that's and you think to yourself as you talk often in this book about, you know, I've decided I'm never gonna let that happen to me ever again. And everyone has experienced and you're that. To swear on this. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Help yourself. I just wanted to read out a text that a friend forwarded <laughs> me last night. This is um uh, an e Evertonian. They're not having a happy Oh, bless time them. They either. were top of the league at the end, yeah, I know. <laughs> the end of last year. Uh, so my friend texted his friend, I would show Richarlison the door tomorrow. Oh, it starts off, Decore, question mm -hmm. mark. And then the next text, I would show Richarlison the door tomorrow if we could get 50 million quid for him. Face like a smacked ass and had done literally nothing this season. And then what he gets back is this, Decore's crap, mate. His feet are tied on the wrong, le wrong leg. He's shite. Terrible footballer. Alan and Gomez run like they're to towing a caravan. Iwobi, <gasps> crap. Bernard, crap. Sigurdsson, <laughs> crap. Keane, bang average. <laughs> That's as good as it gets. Yeah. Ditto Mina, Holgate, championship level. Coleman, once very good but now a liability. What had once looked like three signings now probably need six to seven. With no Europe, who's going to come here? They can get fucked. <laughs> A nice, a nice long week in work now to stew it all over. Fuck off, Everton. Just go and fuck off. <laughs> oh, that sounds so familiar. <laughs> <laughs> it really does. And, and the idea that this is any form of entertainment is yeah. just kind of hilarious when you read stuff like that. But, and Kate, you'll have to take our word for it on this one. <sighs> um, when you do win something... Oh, thank that you, mate. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. And I can, no, I mean, you were I there in 61, right? In, in yeah, emotionally, I was. <laughs> in my former life, yeah. No, I think, well, I think my... The, my, the, my dad is a glory supporter of Tottenham, which is an extraordinary situation, obviously. Um, He's a what? <laughs> well, you know, he picked up the team when we were good. Oh, because of that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. I went to I school with a couple of Blackburn fans just to back the <laughs> I wrong I remember horse. seeing a Blackburn shirt round here in I'm... 1995. Uh, it was hilarious. Well, made perfect sense at the time. Well, not really, you think? Yeah, it was a bit naive even then, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think when you meet people and they tell you who they support, you, it's like ageing a, a tree, isn't it? You're <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're this age and you're a United fan, so you're, yes. you know, the, the first wave of Ferguson. Yeah. Liverpool fans, obviously, 70s, 80s, and then young little ones again now. Um, Chelsea fans, Abramovich. Yeah. 
I always like to say, um, if they tell me they're United or no, City as well, um, yes. you have to be prepared to set aside 10 minutes. But if someone says they support City, I say, oh, who, who are you going to support next? And uh, <laughs> oh, I were bloody there when Mike Summerby. <laughs> yeah, it goes on for about 25 minutes. Or yeah. <laughs> Shut up. Well, so good. Either who do you support next or who did you used to support? That's it's, a really good take, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, do you want to talk about Wenger? I do, because obviously, <laughs> as you know, as an Arsenal fan, Fever Pitch is sort of part of that. You know, it is part mm. of the, the 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 DNA of the club, really. And obviously, it kind of stops at a certain point. Mm. And when I when I started supporting football was in the nineties. I was I was uh, George Graham was was the main man, but it was I was a bit too young for Anfield eighty nine, and it was so all that stuff came later, and it was boring, boring Arsenal. It was one of those ones. I was like, yeah, we are we are a bit boring. Yeah. You can't help but deny that. But obviously. You've suffered through far more than that. You talk about Ian Ewer and Gus Caesar and the trials and tribulations he had and a lot of the the time where Arsenal were known as not just being boring but nasty and just a byword for a, a shit team everyone hated. And then Wenger comes along then and changes the brand that. Changed. Absolutely. So what was what was that like? I mean, because in your own words, Arsenal aren't a team that inspires admiration in other football fans. We share our pleasures with nobody but ourselves. And then all that changed. It was bliss. <laughs> I mean, you know, I didn't feel disconcerted or betrayed or anything. I just thought, I cannot believe what I'm watching. I mean, for um, certainly, I'd, I'd say four or five years, I had this seat in the lower tier and these people were in front of me and probably seven or eight of the greatest Arsenal players of all time on the same pitch mm. um, playing in the, in these games and, and having these just being there for it and beating people 5-6-0 routinely and scoring the best goals you'd ever seen. I mean, that was that was one of the things I remember is that I'd, I'd, I could list you my five greatest goals before Arsene and, you know, they'd have come every five years or something <laughs> like that. And then suddenly you're seeing goals that you can't believe, but on a weekly basis. Yeah. And um, it, it was wonderful. Lauren, Gilberto, Bergkamp, and now Vieira for Arsenal. Magic ball from Bergkamp to Patrick Vieira! The captain fittingly gets the goal that might make history. I do think that having that kind of pleasure, though, does affect the fans and your relationship with the club. Because first of all, you're expecting pleasure when you go. Yeah. So you are being turned into a consumer of entertainment. And when it's taken away, then the entitlement and the anger um, is very difficult to deal with, I think. I mean, what we've seen this year is as bad as anything I've I've ever seen, and and no trace of Arsene is left. It does the feel first that way, few months it? of Emery, you know, there was that game against Leicester when Ozil was on fire and they scored two of the greatest goals you've ever seen in the same yeah. game. And you thought, oh, this is good. He's he's taken Wenger and he's moving it on, but mm. in fact, it was just a kind of genetic memory I think yeah absolutely because it does feel like it is like you know we are talking about DNA and genes and you feel like a good goal is just the fabric of Arsenal in some magical yeah. ethereal like tangible way but of course it's not it is just the sport and you know the, we cycle through through how it works but yeah it um it was a magical time. I remember being I was in my early 20s at the time so I was even then I was aware that it was pretty magic and yeah. I remember as we touched on, on earlier before we started recording I remember somebody saying to me that Gilberto was rubbish because he didn't score enough goals it's like you've you've not been here for very long have you <laughs> like, this is, this, you've got a shot coming in the future I know, I could never work out how the only Brazilian we signed though couldn't do any tricks or anything <laughs> yeah I don't know but when you called the invisible wall have you got a nickname yeah, that good it's I worth know. it right? and then suddenly he was injured for six months or something and everyone's going why do we keep losing <laughs> <laughs> the thing that you're capturing Obviously, I'm not able to relate to some of these experiences that you're describing with such relish um, as Arsenal fans. But I think the thing that, that we started at the very beginning talking about, about how this book connects with fans of all different 
stripes, although apart from the, the new the Johnny Come Lately <laughs> City fans, obviously. Um, but is the way that you that you really, I think, Nick, summon up the quality of experiencing a game as a fan. So there's one particular moment I'm thinking of as uh, Everton semi-final in 88. And you say there is this powerful sensation of being in exactly the right place at the right time, as though I'm at the centre of the whole world. And you put it like Another that. Another League Cup semi-final. <laughs> <laughs> but you put it like that. And then a few pages later, you, you clarify it again. And it feels as though what you're doing in Fever Pitch is, is getting closer and closer to the heart of exactly what the quality is of why people love football. And I think that is why this book is... Yeah, I mean, you know from your professional experience, but one of the reasons that Sky worked out that they had to get football is that there's nothing else that can drive things commercially like that. I mean, you, you, you can't start a TV channel and expect it to work with a bunch of old movies and some comedy programs because you can always get comedy programs somewhere else. You can always get movies somewhere else. But people have to watch the game minute by minute mm. and you, you can't delay it. You can't, you know, anyone who's ever tried... <laughs> To, to watch a game. Look away now. If Look you don't away want to now. Know oh, I've got it taped. I'm going to watch it later. It just doesn't work. You have to be there. And, you know, when it is a big game and, and the stadium's full and the floodlights are on and there are great players on the pitch, you do think this is one of the places to be. Um, you know, and, and I, I, I think I once said it was like uh, my Arsenal ticket um, under the first five years of Arsene, six years of Arsene, was like going down to the village vanguard in New York at the end of the 50s when you could see Miles Davis and everyone on a, on a weekly basis. You just think, I am so lucky and this will never yeah. happen again. The downside, of course... It's is... never going to happen again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose that's, that's another interesting point as well I'd love to hear about. But the... Um, how how do you feel like it's affected your life in terms of you talk there's this bit that really stuck with me where you there's some shitty little game that you want to go to some replay or maybe it wasn't a shitty little game my, forgive me it might have been the most incredibly important yeah, yeah. thing to you that day it but it's against Charlton yeah. and uh, and it's rearranged and so your friend's got five people coming to her birthday party and you're like sorry you're yeah. going to have to have four people yeah. coming to your birthday party now because yeah. I've got to go and watch this game Yeah. how do you feel like it's affected you personally as a human and the relationships of those around you? Well, I have to say it was brilliant writing the book from that point of view. <laughs> as an apology. So I say, uh, yeah, I say, uh, have you read my book? Um, <laughs> I, I, I won't be coming to your wedding and, and I can't really. It would be embarrassing if I did. Um, so I, I love that. It's a bit like one of the things I liked about smoking was just being able to walk out of a dinner you know, to say, I've got to go. And everyone say, oh, he's a smoker. You know? And, and be, being a football fan is like, no, he, he, he won't be there. And, and, and I don't think it's, I've, I've suffered particularly for it. My, my biggest dilemma was in 1993 when this book it, uh, was nominated. This is a complicated story, but it won the William Hill Sports Book of the Year. And part of the prize was a 1,500 quid bet. Okay. Um, I think it was 1,500 quid. And I put it on Arsenal to win two cups. They were in the semis of one and the quarters of the other. Okay. And then they won the League Cup. Yeah. And then the final was on the Saturday. And on the Wednesday, I'd been nominated for this pretty big prize. It was a non-fiction prize. Uh, it was then called the NCR Prize. And it was 30 grand um, was the... <coughs> Um, prize money and I was I'd, I'd written one book the paperback was only just out I had no idea whether I was going to make a, a living as a writer mm. I wanted this this 30 grand and I wanted to win this prize and then the cup final was a draw and they arranged the replay for that night and I'd never missed a game at Wembley before and I sort of agonised all week yeah and my agent very smartly said to me, you have to decide whether you're a writer or a football fan. And I thought, oh, God, that's terrible. 
Um, and I decided that I was a writer and that I would go to this thing. And um, it was at the Savoy, I think. It was a big dinner at the Savoy. And they did, they, they put a TV up in the kitchen. <laughs> for, and you, for, you. for me. <laughs> so I was half the time watching <laughs> the TV in the kitchen. Um, and my uh, my partner was on the table with other people from the publishers and um and then it was one all extra time last minute of extra time <laughs> arsenal scored and i thought first of all i you know leaped to my feet we've won the cup and i thought oh i had that bet i've just won i think it was eight i think it was six to one i just won eight grand and then uh, my partner came running into the room and said they're going to announce the prize and i ran out and they said and the winner is not me. And, uh, and it was like, you know, I, I, Arsenal won the cup. I won eight grand. I lost 30 grand. And it was literally 30, 30 seconds. But um, it was good for me to choose the event over the game, I think. And I think I've now reached a point in life where I wouldn't not do something incredible um, for the sake of an Arsenal game. I think that is a, a lesson learned. When I'm... I got nominated for an Oscar twice and I missed home games both <laughs> both times. Yeah. But there was no question, really. <laughs> it was like, and it's February for a start. If it's the European Cup final, you might have a, a thought about it. But Although that is a bit more of a troubling state of affairs, actually, if you're a friend of Nick Hornby, because... That means that... That's the standard. <laughs> the choice. Oh, yeah, so yeah, your yeah, wedding's yeah, yeah. not really yeah, up to it. No, but, quite um, an Oscar. But the Oscar nomination... <laughs> What's in it for me at your wedding? That does count. So I guess this the five-person birthday party would still have been a no. Yeah, still have been a no. Are you still friends? Yeah. You've at least survived that. I have no no friends left. So almost, <laughs> almost certainly not. It's interesting because you're actually telling it like it's a sort of social crutch because that's another thing I find really interesting about football generally as a spectacle and as a, as a sort of lads together spectacle as as I suppose it very much was when you were um, talking about it in, in the period of time of Fever Pitch is the fact that you can um, stand together and look at something and sort yes, of talk, absolutely. but not, not, uh, but not, you don't, not you're not talking to each other yeah. in a serious Ab- way. Absolutely, and that was what it was with, with my dad yeah. um, when my dad left home. And, um, you know, he, he was living in a different country, so it's almost impossible for someone in that situation to maintain a relationship with a kid because you have to say, how is your life? And kids can't answer that question. Yeah. They can say so-and-so is a dick during geography, but they can't say... This is how my life is. But, you know, just to sit there and every now and again say something about one of the players or or what was happening at another game somewhere else was a very important thing. And I think the social aspect of football, I'm, I'm sure you've both found that if you can talk about it, the way that you break down barriers incredibly quickly um, it's helped me out in so many social occasions where I think I don't know what to talk. Yeah. I wouldn't have known what to talk to this person. It's like knowing a language, isn't it? It completely is like, like knowing a language. And I would say, because it's gone on a long time, but you know, there's a huge number of my friends who, you know, I've, I've got football friends, I've got book friends, I've got music friends. Um, but over time, I've, I've found people who are all of them. Um, just through the sheer numbers of people that you meet. So, you know, it's perfectly possible to meet an Arsenal fan who reads, votes Labour, listens to new music. um, And, and, you know... Guys, shall I leave? (laughs) (laughs) But to have those conversations, to allow Arsenal to make your choices. And, of course, I've always lived here since I was an adult. So, you know, the, the, the connection with the club goes on for other people in my life um you know my kids my kids went to went to school in the in the shadow of the emirates and it it kind of has run everything over over the years and they suffer as you do yeah i'm glad i don't want to live in tottenham because i'm a tottenham supporter i mean it is it is a nice place around here. Yeah, I also i I live in North London because it's what ten year old me wanted, and I am very grateful that, that again that were, it's not they, a bit they, further down the road. You went to Macclesfield. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that would make commuting in for the pod a little it bit more inco- difficult, inconvenient. I suppose um, then, as we come to the end of this 
incredible conversation. Um, I wanted to ask what you would like football to look like now, you know, if you could have a choice. But it sounds, talking to you, as though really the way you've reset your seats like you had at Highbury at the Emirates and the way that you've got your community around you, it almost sounds as those two things can exist completely Well, they can, but um, a lot of people drifted off because, you know, especially now, if you haven't worked for a year, where are you going to find a ground for a season ticket for? If, If I could reset it completely, then obviously, as everyone keeps saying, the German model of much cheaper season tickets, less chasing after expensive foreign talent, relying on homegrown or very smart transfer buys. And that, you know, that wall at Dortmund, the yellow wall, it's just fantastic. We've got one at Spurs, so, you know, I'm sure you can come mm, down. The lily-white wall. <laughs> got a lily white terrifying wall. prospect, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> just fills you with dread. You won the league in black and white. You won the league in the 60s. <laughs> How is it? It's not obviously going to end in this way. <laughs> so football, you would... It's, German football is where you see it. Well, I don't... I, I can't see how we get there because the stupid infrastructure that's been built over mm. the last 20 years is going to be very hard to dismantle. I mean, I think... When you look at what's happened with the the Spotify bid over mm. the last couple of weeks, uh, everyone said, oh, it's great because Thierry Henry and, and this guy from Spotify are going to buy the club. And you think, yeah. no, they're not because those Americans have no interest in selling Absolutely. it. And why would they? So how are we going to get from where, that to 51% fan ownership and, and, and uh, all sorts of other things that will cost them like a lot of money when you think about what those shares are, yeah. have been worth. Yeah, I don't know how you tell Stan Kroenke that he has to give half the club away. No, just, just, no. Yeah. Uh, I would like to find the way to do it, but I can't see it happening. And and I think we're just in the wrong place at the wrong time for that. So all we can hope for is uh, catastrophic destruction of the whole thing and then build it up <laughs> again from grassroots <laughs> level. <laughs> but whatever happens, you'll be there. Yeah, I think so. Uh, there were quite a few people I noticed uh, w- during the Super League thing who immediately started choosing where they were going to go to watch their football. Um, did you have those conversations? I was thinking about it, but I didn't really reach a conclusion. To be I, I had loads of people saying, right, that's it, I'm going to Brentford. Um, I'm going to Orient. And I think if the Super League thing had gone through, I, I would have maybe gone to the Emirates two or three times a season when someone had a spare ticket, but uh, I, I couldn't have taken part in that. It's, it's so embarrassing, I think, for the North London clubs as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it's not, I mean, yeah. No, five five both... elite clubs and Tottenham, I mean. Four elite clubs and the North <laughs> yeah, London clubs. We'll exactly. throw your bone I mean, there, Kate. <laughs> for it to happen on the day that Eddie and Ketia scraped a 97th minute equaliser against Fulham... Yeah, we're not going to bother with this stuff anymore. I remember when um, Milan got knocked out of the European Cup right at the beginning of the 90s and Silvio Berlusconi saying after the game, this is ridiculous, we can't allow this to happen anymore. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he thought, oh, okay. How so? Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, they've got you until the Super League turns into the special Super League for football in that's run from <laughs> yes. the States, it sounds like. Do you think that, I mean, the, the, of course, the big terror is if they start playing the Super League all over the, the world. Yes, the 39th game, but sort of spread uh, out. The whole time. Yes. Guess we'll see. I don't know what we'll... I, d- I think that might be the end of the ramble, guys. <laughs> <laughs> the apocalypse. Yeah, that'd be the real, we're the real victims. Crikey, I feel like, wow, I think that's almost appropriate, isn't it? That that's how... That's how we should end this uh, incredible chat uh, with you, you, Nick Hornby, talking about really enjoyed it. the imminent demise of all things yes. connected <laughs> to what you love. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for coming into the studio to talk to us about Fever Pitch and about, about Arsenal and about football in general. And um, yeah, if you guys haven't read uh, Fever Pitch yet, get on it. We'll link to the latest Absolutely. edition um, and let us know. What we should read next. I'm at KVL Mason, Jim. I'm at Jim Campbell, TFR. And 
And you can also obviously catch us at Football Ramble. And we'll catch you next time for another episode of Book Club on Football Ramble Presents. Football has meant too much to me and come to represent too many things. See, after a while, it all gets mixed up together in your head. You can't remember whether life's shit because Arsenal is shit all the other way around. I've been to watch far too many games, spent too much money. Fretted about Arsenal when I should have been fretting about something else. I've asked too much of the people I love. Okay, I accept all that. But, I don't know, perhaps it's something you can't understand unless you belong. But what about this? Three minutes to go and you're 2-1 up in a semi-final. And you look around and you see all those thousands of faces contorted with fear and hope and worry. Everyone lost. Everything else gone out of their heads. Then the whistle blows and everyone goes spare. And just for those few minutes, you're at the centre of the whole world. And the fact that you care so much that the noise you've made has been such a crucial part of it all is what makes it special. Because you've been every bit as important as the players and if you hadn't have been there, then who'd have been bothered about football really? And the great thing is that it comes around again and again. There's always another season. If you lose the cup final in May, well, there's the third round to look forward to in January. What's wrong with that? It's actually pretty comforting if you think about it. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.